how do we learn about social change? Books, for sure, allow us to glean lessons from history, but the sharpest lessons of all are learnt on the battlefield, in life itself, and in the reflections we take from those moments. Today, to prepare for our Changemakers Masterclass on Electoral Power, I'll run you through my story, sharing some of the different strategies I've pursued and what I've learnt. It's an overview of the many dimensions of electoral power that interest me. So, as we say on the podcast, let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to your homework, your specially designed listening. So I've had lots of different experiences in how to do politics, and I'm going to run you through some of those different phases of my political life. The first is that when I thought about political parties, I thought I should join one. So I uh, joined the Labor Party. I joined the Labor Party in school, uh, but I sat there inactive for several years. Despite calling people at head office, I never got a phone call back, and I remained a member, but nothing more. Then, when I was at university, I became active in the student movement and I became part of the Labour Left grouping. It was like a a movement faction because everyone who was in the Labour Left student movement was both a member of this group, they were called the uh, National Organisation of Labour Students, NOLS, brilliant name, and they were also active in the, um, the wings of the National Union of Students, that is the actual education movement, the educational campaign. Look, I'll be straight with you. The Labor left weren't super sexy. Um, It was a little bit dominated by uh, a philosophy of moderation. We weren't uh, radical revolutionary leftists and we weren't crazy um, centrist rightists. We were like the Goldilocks in the middle. But that also meant for a fairly moderate uh, approach, as I've said. You know, it's the kind of what do we want, moderate change, when do we want it in due course kind of approach to making the world a better place. But it was actually, it was the community of people that kept us connected inside the Labor left. Um, I was at university under a liberal government. It was under the, the government of John Howard. And the fact that they were, John Howard was so awful, kept uh, so many of the progressive people together. And we actually ended up working out um, quite functional collaborative relationships between a really diverse set of factions and groupings, you know, the left, the radical left and the um, incredibly uh, disappointing right um, and led by the, the, um, my group, the Labour left, all did a whole bunch of stuff together. We stopped things like voluntary student unionism. It was um, it was beautiful. And from that time, I think I took one lesson from about three or four years of activism. I took one really important lesson, which is that the closer the connection between the social movement and the political party faction, i.e. between the education movement and the labor left faction that I was in, the more resilient and progressive the faction was. The education movement civilized the political faction and the political faction functioned really effectively in the social movement and each built and worked off each other. So that idea of 
connecting party politics and social movement politics stayed with me. And I later on, I went back to that kind of work, work that sort of connection between uh, movement and party when I was involved in the union movement. And I was involved uh, at Unions New South Wales, which was the peak council of uh, unions. And uh, I was a a special projects officer there. And then I was also an, an elected official, the youngest female elected official. And I worked for 10 years in the union movement after I um, finished my university degree. And in the union movement, uh, some of you would be aware that unions are affiliated with the Labor Party. That means that they're form, some of them, not all of them, some of them are formal members. They provide dues, that is money, and that they have a special relationship as in a, a voting partially controlling relationship with the Labor Party. And that comes from the fact that unions formed the Labor Party in um, in the late uh, 1800s. And so uh, I was able to see that and um, see that in action. But what I also was part of was this campaign called the Your Rights at Work campaign, and it was massive. So you would, many of you would remember it. Um, what I saw was uh, a marginal seats campaign. There was door knocking. There were strong networks built in Sydney alone. We had five seats that we were working in. There was a program of phone calling into those seats. We had organisers in each of those seats. It was it was an intensive operation. It was a really hard campaign. Um, it's funny. Uh, I think from the outside, it looks like that unions just are in the Labor Party and tell people what to do. My experience from the inside is that that's not actually how it occurs. Unions need to really fight for their uh, to be taken seriously inside the Labor Party. Um, and uh, indeed, during the Your Rights at Work campaign, it was only through fighting and relationships and disagreement at formally at policy conferences and quietly in private relationships between union leaders in the ALP that uh, policies like Australian workplace agreements got nixed. So Australian workplace agreements were still supported by Kim Beasley and it was only when Kevin Rudd became leader off the back of union support that those policies were removed. Um, And that only happened because people like Kevin Rudd knew that it was the Your Rights at Work campaign that was capable of delivering him a victory as Prime Minister. So Actually, there was a really strong relationship between this campaigning movement relationship and campaigning in public and the relationship of the union movement to the Labor Party that really made things work and made things powerful for unions at that time. It was it was not simply, oh, I'm an affiliated member, so therefore I have power. I also saw that, you know, there was plenty of times where they didn't get what they want. The Fair Work Act was a pretty ordinary piece of legislation, even though, um, Unions had fought really hard. In pa- with the paid maternity leave uh, campaign that I helped run in 20, 2008, um, we didn't get what we wanted from the Labor Party. It was the Productivity Commission and a campaign we ran around that that ended up delivering 18 weeks paid maternity leave. Electricity privatisation was the same. There's heaps of examples where unions haven't been able to carry um, the Labor Party. There's been some where they have like your rights at work, but actually it's been a difficult relationship. And certainly you would have to say that just simply because a social movement like the union movement as part of the Labor Party doesn't guarantee its power. Indeed, that was the second lesson that I really learned, that power really only works um, for a, a movement like the union movement when you're in the community as as well as being in the Labor Party. It's not good enough to just be in the Labor Party. You had to be in both. 
And the extent to which you could demonstrate electoral power, the more power that you had. It was quite clear that also from my time as unions have declined over the many years, that unions just aren't enough. Um, they were too small. They were too fringe to the politics, sadly. And uh, their issue agenda was often too narrow. So um, it was also clear that being able to campaign on uh, a wider range of issues was going to be important. And that spelled out a bunch of work that I ended up doing on different issues and broader issues um, and uh, working with broader organisations. The first iteration of that um, broader issue experience was actually, I have to go back again, was in 2001. And that's when the ALP, I was in the ALP and it completely abandoned my values with the Tampa crisis. The people might remember the Tampa crisis. It was pretty awful. Uh, a, a, a boat that had picked up a sinking um, refugee boat called the Tampa was heading to deliver those refugees to the nearest land, um, which was Christmas Island. John Howard sent in the Navy, uh, changed the borders of Australia and um, sent those refugees to uh, Papua New Guinea and Nauru. And Kim Beasley, who was the head of the Labor Party at the time, backed them in. And it was a disgrace. It was a terrible time. Not long after that was September 11. I, um, I'd moved on from being uh, a high school uh, university student and now I was in the big party, the big Labor Party. So what do you do? So I ended up um, being part of a conversation uh, that decided to do something different. So normally what happens in a moment like that is the left-wingers rant and rave, the right-wingers back in the leader and the status quo remains. Instead, what we did was we had a cross-factional response. I was from the left and I built these great relationships with people like John Robertson and Paul House from the right and we formed an organisation called Labour for Refugees. The first night of the Labour for Refugees, 150 Labour Party members came to a meeting in Haymarket, um, and it was highly unusual. We uh, moved motions through the the ALP apparatus. We had 250 branches in New South Wales opposed mandatory detention and offshore processing and other policies. You know that's that is the most significant ALP formal intervention that's ever happened on any policy, including, for instance, the most recent Stopadani campaign, but on other policies as well. We just absolutely took the party by storm and were able to organise inside the party. We also organised um, at the ALP conference and we rolled the stage, which never has had never happened in the ALP. Um, opposition leader Simon Crean and Julia Gillard entered into negotiations with us. The negotiations broke down. We moved a motion. We carried the stage and the ALP opposed mandatory detention. And then the same thing happened in um, Queensland, in uh, the ACT, and then in Western Australia. And then we also participated in social movements like Palm Sunday and other rallies. It was nice. It started off really strong, but it didn't stay that way. The first lesson that came of it was that actually the problem that we that that I thought was that we were treating these two spaces as separate, that somehow on one hand in one space there was the ALP and you could organise inside the ALP and then quite a far away away was the social movements. And so we would organise in the ALP with ALP people and would organise in the social movements with social movement people, but we never connected those two spaces. And the truth is, is that that was a problem because actually it was the broken spaces like the incredibly tight rules of the Labor Party 
that could have done with a bit of social movement adventurism to allow us to win in that space. We could have done with an intersection between the two, but we didn't. And we didn't see the problem coming, actually. We didn't, because we actually had a few a few wins early on, we didn't see this problem. <laughs> it didn't hit us until the beginning of two, 20, the, 2003 when the national conference occurred and we were absolutely destroyed. Um, different factional players, actually, in the first instance, people in the right, uh, no, the people in the right, sure, we sort of knew that they were going to be against us, but equally opportunists in the left who wanted to attack Julia Gillard played us like a fiddle and we were um, we were made to look like a factional game rather than actually a um, broad-based social movement. And we ended up being in a situation where the left locked in in support of our motions and the right locked in, in against our motions, just like as usually happens, as I was, we were worried about all the way back at the beginning of Labor for Refugees. And every single power player spoke against us. You know, it was insane. Three premiers and two ministers. And on our side were basically rank and file people and a few junior people, including, you know, Sally McManus at the time, who's now the head of the ACTU, but and actually Anthony Albanese, who's the opposition leader. But those people weren't very senior at the time. And we were humiliated, really, humiliated in, in defeat. Um, and at the time, I learned a few lessons. At the time, I thought, oh, I've got to revisit how social change works because I had a theory of change that maybe if you just changed the Labor Party, that you could change the country. And that utterly, completely failed. I, I learned in that moment as I walked away from that conference and sat on a concrete step outside of uh, the convention centre at Darling Harbour and had a bit of a cry um, that the only answer now was to go and change attitudes in the community and through that I would change the Labor Party. But I also, in retrospect, have learnt a second lesson that I want to present to you and that we can explore during the masterclass, which is that you can't be progressive inside the Labor Party unless you dismantle and transform the structures and systems that provide power to the status quo that actually the left inside the Labor Party are practicing learned helplessness and in some ways are enablers of the very system that they claim to hate. That actually, unless you're actively dismantling the disaster that is the internal ALP structure, the incredibly tight, frankly, you know, Stalinistic, Stalin would be impressed by their work, the way in which the people just have so little power in those structures. Unless you're breaking down those systems, and that includes the factional system and the deals that are done between the left and the right to get individual seats. Uh, unless you're breaking that down, then you're actually just enabling a system that is always going to disappoint. So how you be in the Labor Party has to be an agitational question. And people who are in the Labor Party need to think about how they are, not just as individuals, you can't do much as an individual, but how, in what form, in what group is that systemic dismantling of, um, of broken power, of power over, of, of untransparent authoritarian power, how is that being dismantled and are we enabling something new? So next bit, devastated, I pursued a non-party, non-partisan route to social change. I tore up my Labor Party uh, ticket and uh, did two things. I set up GetUp, 
um, with some friends from uh, who were visiting from the US, but actually who I went to university with. And um, I also set up the Sydney Alliance. And so, and it wasn't that long, much later. Get Up, we formed um, eight months after that awful conference. And it was definitely, I saw it as um, an incredibly important opportunity for building a, a non-partisan voice. You'd be able to use digital campaign means to be able to bring people to access politics. And that's what politics needed. We needed more people to be able to participate more easily. So we used that digital tool. And then with the Sydney Alliance, I went to the United States for a couple of years to complete my PhD. And I had studied, read books about community organising and I went and found the community organisers at the Industrial Areas Foundation, looked them up, gave them a call, met them, did their training, and to be honest, found what I reckon is probably the smartest nonpartisan strategy I'd ever seen. It's a philosophy of public action where you use incredibly broad-based relational relationship building to press for power, and then you seek to exercise the public agitation for power in the most powerful way possible. Negotiations are done in public. They're intentional. They are full on. 2,000 people in a room, politician on the same press, on the stage, I'm going to press you for the questions that we need to make this community work on specific asks. I had never seen anything like that before. Similarly, there's other stuff that I'd seen in the US too about their electoral strategies. It all just seemed to be so much more um, intense um, and interesting. And certainly this piece, this idea of relational organising um, and building these broad-based organisations seems something new. So I came back to Australia. I set up the Sydney Alliance. The Sydney Alliance is a broad-based community organisation with uh, religious organisations, unions and community organisations inside of it. It built a culture of community organising, which is basically this quite intentional philosophy of how to build power together. And uh, it was very is still successful here in Sydney and then it's birthed other alliances around the country in Queensland, the Queensland Community Alliance, and then networks in Auckland and also in and around Newcastle now. So it's the spreading of this way of doing public action, helping um, organisations that have been less political be more political so they can take care of um, their people and their people can be um, in charge of their lives. But here's the lesson, right? So I did that for a long time. basically 10 years being on the board of GetUp and running the Sydney Alliance. And I don't think we really worked. Like I actually, it's nice, it's good, GetUp, Sydney Alliance, great, but it hasn't really worked. And I think that it's really important um, as a social change campaigner to admit when things aren't working. Um, Neither of them have been powerful enough. And they've not been powerful enough for a bunch of reasons, but one of them is this, which is that there's a whole bunch of spaces of power, like those in the party, like those that I had seen in the union movement and even all the way back when I was a um, university student, quiet spaces, but powerful spaces, formal spaces in the party apparatus and also relational spaces that are just quiet party spaces that we removed ourselves from. I felt like I was doing the same thing I'd done in Labour for Refugees but the other way around. So 
I was making the mistake of separating movement and party, but instead of being in labor for refugees and being in the labor space and hanging out in the labor space and then occasionally jumping over to the movement space but not connecting them, this time I was building a magnificent social movement, great social movements, biggest in the country, well done, that had no functional deep relationship or connection to any political parties or really to an electoral apparatus. Over time, I felt that there was a strategic, uh, and it made me question this idea of nonpartisanship. Like, why do we think that nonpartisanship works? Like, why is that the right strategy? It might be the right strategy for Get Up, and it might be the right strategy for Sydney Alliance. But so many of us as progressives assume that nonpartisanship, separation from political sp- parties, is morally right and strategically right. I started to think differently. Over time, I felt that there was a strategic dishonesty to nonpartisan politics. Because to be honest, for me, and I'm separate from those two organisations, so I'm speaking for myself, let's be honest, Labor are better to work with than the Liberals. Labor produces better results. They never get into government because they don't run a decent bloody campaign, but when they do, it it is a bit easier to work with them. Let's just call it. But we in nonpartisan world, we act like they're the same. We tell our members that they're the same. You know, oh, they're all politicians and we're just going to push them as far as they as we can. But that's not true. <laughs> or, you know, we're in Get Up where we try and actually distinguish between them, there's a world of pain that follows, right? It just felt like there was something wrong, unresonant in the work that I was doing. But here's the thing. I knew that just joining the Labor Party wasn't influential or powerful right? I just felt totally stuck. So then I started to build Changemakers and Changemakers gave me the opportunity to travel and look at global radical politics. And in the first series, to produce the first series a few months before it went to air, I did this insane trip and I went for for four weeks to seven countries doing stories. Bam, 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 bam. I went um, to South Africa, Kenya, Uganda, Barcelona, Moscow, Hong Kong, Bangkok, right? It was completely mad and I would suggest you don't don't do a trip like that. It's too much. But the intensity of of comparative research never really happens that much except when you back to back do go to seven countries in a row, right? You can do comparative research, but that kind of comparative research is a rare find. And People used to ask me, what did you learn from that trip or what did you learn from doing Changemakers? And the most obvious and enormous lesson that came from that trip in particular and that has come from other research that I've done since then is that radical politics and political parties, radical political parties or just transforming action around political parties is happening everywhere except Australia. So let me just run you through some of the things I saw. So what I mean there is I don't mean that somehow a political party through a bureaucratic transformation of votes and boringness um, becomes radical. You'll be shocked, but that doesn't normally happen unless you're in New Zealand where it seems to happen. But aside from that, it doesn't happen. Um, in, in, um, In the places that I saw, it was happening because there was a movement intervention, a massive popular movement intervention in response to a disastrous political environment presses not just on outside um, and confronts the state on the outside through protest, but it actually 
intervenes and takes over or not even takes over, like presses into um, progressive political parties. So this happened in Barcelona and we're going to talk about this during the retreat. You should listen to episode one of Changemakers to get a hold of this um, story. But in Barcelona, housing activists after the 2018, 2008 um, austerity experience and global financial crisis set up a new political party. There were lots of new political parties set up in, in um, Spain, 400 to be precise. Um, but in Barcelona, it was Barcelona en Camus. They were fed up with traditional left and right parties and they won city government. And then interestingly, just a few months ago in May, they won it again. They're, these radicals, Articolau, are, are in charge of the city. Similar things are happening in Hong Kong with people like Nathan Law and Joshua Wong setting up radical political parties after Umbrella. And watch, just watch, by November there's going to be a radical political party intervention into Hong Kong post-extradition laws. I was just there. They're organising around that. That's the next step, yeah, as long as China doesn't do something completely awful in the meantime. But there will be a political party intervention. The same thing's happening in Chile. It's being explored in South Africa. There's a massive independent political party movement in Moscow, right? Radical political parties is one thing that's happening. Another thing that's happening is what's happening in the United States. So people have heard of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. So what she is doing is a different strategy. She's supported by a movement called Justice Democrats who are staging an intervention into an existing political party, that is the Democrats, and they are supporting and sponsoring candidates to win against disastrous Republican Democrats and to take marginal seats as well. They built off the Bernie Sanders legacy, the Democratic Socialist legacy, and they are radicals. You know, Green New Deal is coming from this, these quarters. They're taxing billionaires. It's quite remarkable. So I guess the thing is, is there's a lot to unpack here. Do we go, what do, what do we think about political parties? What do we think about social movements? Are you a nonpartisan? Why? Question that. Are you in a party? Why? Is it working? Are you thinking that we need to reimagine how we do electoral politics? How do we even understand what I mean when we say electoral politics, is it just elections? Because for me, it's not. It's about how we engage the state knowing there are elections while also knowing that there is a popular majority that we can use to influence their actions. There's a multiplicity of strategies and we are, I'm going to present you a framework for trying to interpret them, understand them, and then for you to scenario plan them so you can see what it could look like if we were better at understanding the potential power we have as citizen activists. So I'll see you soon.